0: My, is a podcast with Patrick Attaway My podcast where I discuss writing specifically today The novel Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro I hope I pronounced that correctly Yes, I am doing something that I have never done and hopefully never have to do again And that I am reading this novel for an oral exam So I'm doing the podcast a little bit differently so I read this book over the course of two weeks, and I'm going to break it down for you the best that I can for my own sake. We're going to skip the rambling today, and we're, getting, we're going to get into the book. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you I didn't like this book. I watched the movie to help me kind of, you know, get everything together. I didn't like the movie. I also don't think that the movie was a very good adaptation of the novel, because what takes place within part one of this novel, which is a pretty big chunk of the novel, takes place in about 20 minutes of the movie. And there's not a whole lot of nice things that I can say about this book. I will say that it's very well written. The prose is very good. However, the book itself, I would not have picked this to read for pleasure, And if you are coming into this as a fan of Miss Ishiguru, if I'm pronouncing her last name correctly, I would advise you to not. You know, you should go ahead and turn it off, because this is not an audiobook podcast. So if you came in here hoping to hear someone read Never Let Me Go from start to finish, within an hour's time, you're going to be very disappointed. Likewise... If you think that there's something problematic about me criticizing this author's work, I also suggest that you turn it off, because I'm not catering to you. I'm actually doing this episode for myself, so I can work through this novel and try to get a a better feel for it. Because I read it, and I watched the film, but I I didn't have a good time, and it took me a a long time to get through it. Two weeks for a novel that's not even 300 pages is a lot of time, but I I kind of had to force myself to do it. I did it as I woke up every morning before work, and that was not fun for me at all. Now the next novel that I'm reading for this oral exam is a novel called White Teeth, which I've never heard of prior to this. but. I may do an episode on that. Before I get into the novel, I am going to do something that I've never done before. And I'm going to give you a brief synopsis of this book. Just so we have a common ground. Because chances are, if you're listening to me and you've never read the book before, you've probably never heard of the book before and you have no idea what the hell it's about. And it's misleading, let me tell you. But before we get into that, I have a new album coming out. It's going to drop any day on Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes, Amazon, YouTube. As you may know, I make music under the name Lurking Vowel. And I made my 54th album and it's called Stuck in the Elevator. It is a mixture of experimental rock, ambient and jazz. So, if you're into any of that or if you've heard my music on the podcast, like The Introductory, The Introductory, tune, uh, you might like what I put out. There's a lot of acoustic guitar on this album. My wife is watching Roswell in the living room, so we might have a little bit of that peering in through the wall. Is that the right word, peering? It's looking at us from the other side of the wall. It's judging us for being stupid and not liking this book. Anyway, this novel is supposed to be a dystopian science fiction novel. However, if you know anything about dystopian science fiction and you come into this expecting an actual science fiction novel, you're going to be disappointed. Because in all actuality, it's a memoir. It's a fictional memoir, but it is a a memoir of sorts. And the protagonist, Kathy... And she doesn't have a last name. She has an initial. Her last initial is H. She is a caregiver. Essentially what she is is a hospice worker and a nurse. But she doesn't really have a whole lot of qualifications for that. But beyond that, she is reminiscing on her friendship with a girl named Ruth and a boy named Tommy. Now if you watch the film in my opinion and I shouldn't have to say in my opinion because this is my podcast but in my opinion the film demonizes Ruth to a tremendous degree. I don't think that Ruth is really a bad person. I don't think that Kathy's a bad person but she's a Mary Sue. And She's a a victimized Mary Sue because she's the perfect girl that Tommy just keeps overlooking, even though he's perfectly friendly with her. They have a fine friendship, but all in all, it makes sense that Ruth and Tommy are together. And for some reason, Kathy, the author, has allowed her to be single throughout most of the story. And she and Tommy only have their little thing when he's already donating his organs. So if you're not aware of the science fiction aspect of this novel, they're clones. They're clones of regular people in England. And they are raised in a school environment without parents. That's one of the things that for some reason doesn't like strike readers when they first start reading this, because it didn't strike me, the fact that they don't have parents. They don't, they don't, Kathy at no point starts talking about her mom and dad. It's just, they're a bunch of kids in this quasi boarding school. And it turns out that their boarding school is uh, this place called Helsham. It was actually an experiment to see if they could I don't know, make it so that the clones were productive members of society and that proof that they could educate them and whatnot. But all in all, these clones are meant to die at a very early age because they're having their organs harvested. So you have to consider the problematic aspect of that, but here's my perspective as an author. I don't think that this should have been a novel. This should have been a short story at best. Maybe a 20-pager, but the idea that you have this great concept for England abusing its power, creating clones, and using those clones, essentially murdering them very slowly by taking their organs... That, that, that's a great idea, but it would be best suited for something a lot shorter than this novel because, yeah, that's a problem. But this doesn't really show them having an, any sort of struggle with that beyond their relationships because Kathy seems to really accept it pretty early on. So they have a a teacher that tells them, okay, you're all being misled. What's really happening here is we're raising you, and when you're old enough, the government is going to take all of your organs, and you're going to die. So everything that you do in this school is effectively meaningless because there's a lot made about their art, And the things that they're able to create, there's this thing called the gallery that turns out to be a bunch of bullshit. The gallery is supposed to be hosting their artwork, these children's artwork, as if anyone would really want to see that. I know I'm heartless, but it's... If this sounds boring to you, it's boring to me too, okay? And I had to sit through the movie as well, and the movie felt longer than the fucking book that I took two weeks to uh, read. Rather, Right off the bat with the first chapter, we have an author breaking all the creative writing rules, and not in a spectacular way. Now, as I said, she does a really great job of writing this novel in terms of her prose and her structure and everything that's great however chapter one starts with my name is kathy h i'm 31 years old and i've been a carer now for over 11 years this is something that a creative writing professor will mark out in red so i'm not saying that creative writing professors know their foot from their ass when it comes to writing i'm just pointing out that this is someone who is effectively negating any notion of rules for writing okay she might as well have started this novel with an alarm clock ringing and this little girl or actually 31 year old person getting up and stretching, and yawning, and whatever, and having the dog come up and lick them. Realistically speaking, uh, most of this novel takes place from the perspective of a younger person. Despite the fact that she's saying, hey, I'm Kathy H, and I'm 31 years old, and I'm a professional, what's really happening here is we're getting the perspective of a little girl turning into a woman, which that in itself would be a different novel. Not a science fiction novel, right? Well, we have this added element of science fiction. And... mm, It doesn't really fit. Now, in terms of the, the dramatic aspect that Kathy loves these two people, Ruth and Tommy, and she's gonna have to watch them die, that's sad, but there are a ton of different ways to do that. And you could do it without making them clones, without parents, and whatever, but I'm not her editor. That sounds long enough, I know, but actually they want me to go on for another eight months until the end of this year. That'll make it almost exactly 12 years. Now, I know my being a carer so long isn't necessarily because they think I'm fantastic at what I do, There are some really great carers who've been told to stop after just two or three years. And I can think of one carer, at least, who went on for all of 14 years despite being a complete waste of space. So I'm not trying to boast. But then, I do know for a fact that they've been pleased with my work. And by and large, I have too. My donors have always tended to do much better than expected. Their recovery times have been impressive. And hardly any of them have been classified as agitated, even before my fourth donation. Okay, maybe I am boasting now, but it means a lot to me, being able to do my work well, especially that bit about my donors staying calm. I've developed a kind of instinct around donors. I know when to hang around and comfort them, when to leave them to themselves, when to listen to everything they have to say, and when just to shrug and tell them to snap out of it. Anyway, I'm not making any big claims for myself. I know carers working now who are just as good and don't get half the credit. If you're one of them, I can understand how you might get resentful about my bedsit, my car, above all, the way I get to pick and choose who I look after. And I'm a Hailsham student, which is enough by itself sometimes to get people's backs up. Kathy H., they say, she gets to pick and choose, and she always chooses her own kind. People from Hailsham or one of the other privileged estates. No wonder she has a great record. I've heard it said enough, so I'm sure you've heard it plenty more. And Maybe there's something in it, but I'm not the first to be allowed to pick and choose, and I doubt if if I'll be the last. And anyway, I've done my share of looking after donors brought up in every kind of place. By the time I finish, remember, I'll have done 12 years of this. And it's only for the last six that they've let me choose. Go read the reviews for this book on Amazon, by the way. You will find a lot of people did not like this book. Now, if you like this book, that's perfectly fine. Different strokes for different folks, as they say. My favorite novels are probably not your cup of tea, and that's fine. The novels that I've written are probably not your cup of tea, and that's also fine. Speaking of cup of tea, I'm going to drink for mine. For this special occasion, I am drinking an Earl Grey tea. Cheers. But the way I'm reading this, I talk about voice on this podcast sometimes. When I read something, I look for a voice that I enjoy. So when I think of great postmodern writers, I think of Bredys Donellis, Charles Bukowski, Flannery O'Connor, Percival Everett, Sylvia Plath. David Sedaris these are authors who inspire me and I try to incorporate their influence into my own writing but you have writers who don't really understand the concept of voice but also there's something to be said for the difference between men and women who write now my struggle as a a man and who reads everything through the lens of a writer is I'm looking for voices that appeal to me. And so I can't read things that I used to be able to read to. Uh, I used to be able to read because they no longer appeal to me. So my brain is naturally going to shut most of it out. So that's why it took me two weeks to get through this novel. It was not fun for me. And reading should be, above all else, entertaining and a form of disengagement. So, when I have to think more... I don't want to say think more critically, but when I have to break out of my comfort zone, which I already have to do for school reading anyway, I, I have a harder time getting through it, but I also have a harder time grasping it or even reading it the way the, the writer intended for it to be read. So when I'm reading this out loud, it, for one thing, I'm a guy reading uh, the, from the perspective of a woman. I am reading it in a slightly condescending way, obviously, because of my, my feelings toward the novel. But also, maybe this wasn't written for me. And that's also fine. I mean, authors shouldn't be expected to write for everybody. Regardless of gender, uh, sexual orientation, race, whatever, you write for the audience you want to write for. And it doesn't matter if that's one person or a million people. I don't know that this novel was written with me in mind, and that's perfectly fine. As the author, she should be able to write for whoever the hell she wants, even if it's just for herself. But I was, you know, forced to read this, which is fine. And why shouldn't they? Carers aren't machines. You try and do your best for every donor, but in the end, it wears you down. You don't have unlimited patience and energy, so when you get a chance to choose, of course, you choose your own kind. That's natural and a little racist. There's no way I could have gone on for as long (laughs) as I have if I'd stopped feeling for my donors every step of the way. And anyway, if I'd never started choosing, how would I ever have got close again to Ruth and Tommy after all those years? But these days, of course, there are fewer and fewer donors left who I remember, and so in practice I haven't been choosing that much. As I say... The work gets a lot harder when you don't have the deeper link with the donor. And though I'll miss being a carer, it feels just about right to be finishing it last come the end of the year. Most of this book has nothing to do with her being a carer. So this whole introduction, establishing her character, it's largely unnecessary to the rest of the book. This next passage illustrates uh, a grinding of my gears. Driving around the country now, I still see things that will remind me of Hailsham. I might pass the corner of a misty field, or see part of a large house in the distance as I come down the side of a valley. Even a particular arrangement of poplar trees up on a hillside, and I'll think, maybe that's it. I found it. That actually is Hailsham. Then I see it's impossible, and I go on driving, my thoughts drifting on elsewhere. In particular, there are those pavilions. I spot them all over the country, standing on the far side of playing fields, little white prefab buildings with a row of windows naturally high up, tucked almost under the eaves. I think they built a whole lot like that in the 50s and 60s, which is probably when ours was put up. If I drive past one, I keep looking over for as long as possible. And one day I'll crash the car like that, but I, I keep doing it. Not long ago, I was driving through an empty stretch of Worcestershire and saw one behind a cricket ground like ours at Helsham. I actually turned the car and went back for a second look. That passage, that is a long paragraph. And, boy, is it difficult to get through without yawning. So, as a writer, all of that could have been summed up in a sentence. And those of you out there who love the form and you love prose and everything, more power to you. But, to me, quality prose and moving a a plot or just moving a novel, because you don't always have to have a plot, it requires some finesse. So, when I think of a a writer who's putting out their sixth novel, and it's through a major publisher, they probably have a lot of say in what gets cut and what doesn't. So, I imagine that the editor was like, okay, you can keep all this rambling in here. Now, some of that did provide you with some information, however, she has these really, really long stretches of paragraphs and she keeps going on about the pavilion and all this other shit that you, you really don't need to know about. The pavilion was big enough to take two separate groups without them bo- bothering each other in the summer. A third group could hang out around the veranda. But ideally, you and your friends wanted the place just to yourselves, so there was often jockeying and arguing. The Guardians were always telling us to be civilized about it, but in practice, you need to have some strong personalities in your group to stand a chance of getting the pavilion during a break or free period. I wasn't exactly the wilting type myself, but I suppose it was really because of Ruth we got in there as often as we did. Usually we just spread ourselves around the chairs and benches. There'd be five of us, six if Jenny B. came along and had a good gossip. There was a kind of conversation that could only happen when you were hidden away in the pavilion. We might discuss something that was worrying us, or might end up screaming with laughter, or in a furious row. Mostly, it was a way to unwind for a while with your closest friends. I had no interest in reading that, and it didn't really provide me much information. Someone said, we shouldn't be so obvious about watching, but we hardly move back at all. Then Ruth said, he doesn't suspect a thing. Look at him. He really doesn't suspect a thing. They're watching Tommy play football, which is soccer, for those of you in America. When she said this, I looked at her and searched for signs of disapproval about what the boys were doing to Tommy. But the next second, Ruth gave a little laugh and said, The idiot. And I realized that for Ruth and the others, whatever the boys chose to do was pretty remote from us. Whether we approved or not didn't come into it. We were gathering around the windows at the moment, not because we relished the prospect of seeing Tommy get humiliated yet again and Just because we'd heard about the latest plot and were vaguely curious to watch it unfold. In those days, I don't think what the boys did amongst themselves went much deeper than that. For Ruth, for the others, it was that detached. And the chances are that's how it would be for me too. Good lord. I'm going to take another sip of tea. Or maybe I'm remembering it wrong. Maybe even then when I saw Tommy rushing about that field, undisguised a light on his face to be accepted back in the fold again, about to play the game at which he so excelled, maybe I did feel a little stab of pain. What I do remember is that I noticed Tommy was wearing the light blue polo shirt he'd got in the sales the previous month. There's some weird uh, language Uh, structure being used here that I'm not familiar with as an American. The one he was so proud of. I remember thinking, he's really stupid playing football on that. It'll get ruined. And how is he gonna feel? Out loud, I said to no one in particular, Tommy's got his shirt on, his favorite polo shirt. I don't think anyone heard me because... They were all laughing at Laura, the big clown in our group, mimicking one after the other. The expressions that appeared on Tommy's face as he ran, waved and called and tackled. The other boys were all moving around the field in that deliberately languorous way they have when they're warming up. But Tommy, in his excitement, seemed already to be going full pelt. I said louder this time, he's going to be so sick if he ruins that shirt. This time, Ruth heard me but she must have thought I'd meant it as some kind of joke because she laughed half-heartedly then made some quip of her own. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that is quality writing. Another sip of tea, please. I mean, god, I have to I mean, I have to skip large sections of this novel, even larger than normal to get through it in one episode. I should explain a bit here about the exchanges we had at Hailsham. Four times a year spring, summer, autumn, winter we had a kind of big exhibition come sale of all the things we'd been creating in the three months since the last exchange paintings, drawings, pottery, all sorts of sculptures made from whatever was the craze of the day, bashed up cans, maybe, or bottle tops stuck onto cardboard. For each thing you put in, you were paid in exchange tokens. The Guardians decided how many your particular masterpiece merited. And then on the day of the exchange, you went along with your tokens and bought the stuff you liked. The rule was you could only buy work done by students in your own year. But that still gave us plenty to choose from since most of us could get pretty prolific over a three month period. Looking back now, I can see why the exchanges became so important to us for a start they were our only means aside from the sales the sales were coming well, the sales were something else which i'll come to later of building up a collection of personal possessions If, say, you wanted to decorate the walls around your bed or wanted to carry something around in your bag and place on your desk from room to room, then you would find it at the exchange. I can see now, too, how the exchanges had a more subtle effect on us all. If you think about it being dependent on each other to produce the stuff that might become your private treasures, that's bound to do things to your relationships. The Tommy business was typical. A lot of the time... How you were regarded at Helsham, how much you were liked and respected, had to do with how good you were at creating. Ruth and I often found ourselves remembering these things A few years ago, when I was caring for her down at the recovery center in Dover. It's all part of what made Helsham so special, she said once. The way we were encouraged to value each other's work. True, I said. But sometimes, when I think about the exchanges now, a lot of it seemed a bit odd. The poetry, for instance. I remember we were allowed to hand in poetry instead of a drawing or a painting. And the strange thing was, we all thought that was fine. We thought that made sense. Why shouldn't it? Poetry's important. But we're talking about nine-year-old stuff. Funny little lines, all misspelled in exercise books. We'd spend our precious tokens on an exercise book full of that stuff, rather than on something really nice for around our beds. If we were so keen on a person's poetry, why didn't we just borrow it and copy it down ourselves on any old afternoon? Great fucking question, Kathy. Why don't you all just run away? I mean, these people get old enough to take care of themselves, and yet they still allow the government to come and take their fucking organs. They could literally go to another country. They could hide out in the woods. They could go to the country, assume a new identity. They could go to Scotland. They could go to Ireland. They could go to the fucking North Pole. Anywhere but the place that is going to kill you when you're in your 20s and 30s. How about that? No, that doesn't work for you? Well, that's too bad. You're going to fucking die, you goddamn moron. I'm skipping some sections to spare you. However, there is one section. I'm not going to read it, but there's this whole disagreement with Ruth and Kathy. And Ruth essentially buys a pencil holder, a box, a bag, whatever. And she leads the other students to believe that this... Teacher Miss Lucy gave it to her, and so they come up with this whole secret guard thing where they think that they need to protect Miss Lucy from outside threats that don't exist. But Ruth and Kathy have this falling out because Kathy calls her out for lying about the pencil holder, and it's all just little kid drama bullshit. But the author gives us a lot of information about this as if it really matters. And if you think in the short lifespan of these people, it does matter. Your little qualms and quibbles with each other, they are important. And when we're children, they're important. I mean, think about how you have a disagreement with a friend over the dumbest shit when you're a kid. And when you grow up, you laugh about it. But when you are a kid, it doesn't... It's everything. I mean, when I was in, I was about four or five, I want to say I was four, I went to daycare. And in that daycare, we had coloring time, of course, and I, being a four-year-old, scribbled. And I didn't really give a shit about the lines. I just scribbled away. Uh, My niece, who I just saw today, and she spent the night with us last night, Uh, she was drawing on her phone. She has some sort of stylus, and she can draw on it, and it's mostly scribbles, and she's six years old. But for some reason, there was a huge importance placed on coloring. So there was this girl, and it was her and this older boy. And in in reality, they were only about a year older than me, but that seemed like a lot at the time. So this boy asked her in line as we were about to go outside, when we grow up, are you going to marry me? And she said, yeah. And I said, are you going to marry me too? And she said, no, because you scribble. And that was just daunting for me. But the fact that coloring was a big deal to us, yeah, it seems stupid now, but for kids, this is what they have. And they don't have the emotional capacity to process things as being stupid and unimportant. In the film, Miss Lucy is portrayed portrayed as this well-meaning sweet lady. But in all actuality, the older people in this novel, uh, at least from the perspective of these children, they're pretty cold. They're not offering these children much affection. And considering that these children don't have parents, uh, the fact that they're growing up and forming these bonds with each other, that's the only bond that they have, so it makes sense that they stick together when they get older, of course. But They romanticize these older people who are taking care of them. And Miss Lucy finally has enough and she has to tell them the truth. But Miss Lucy was now moving her gaze over the lot of us. I know you don't mean any harm, but there's just too much talk like this. I hear it all the time. It's been allowed to go on and it's not right. I could see more drops coming off the gutter and landing on her shoulder, but she didn't seem to notice. If no one else will talk to you, she continued, then I will. The problem, as I see it, is that you've been told and not told. You've been told, but none of you really understand, and I dare say some people are quite happy to leave it that way. But I'm not. If you're going to have decent lives, then you've got to know and know properly. None of you will go to America. None of you will be film stars. And none of you will be working in supermarkets, as I heard some of you planning the other day. Your lives are set out for you. You'll become adults. Then before you're old, before you're even middle-aged, you'll start to donate your vital organs. That's what each of you was created to do. You're not like the actors you watch on your videos. You're not even like me. You were brought into this world for a purpose, and your futures, all of them, have been decided. So you're not to talk that way anymore. You'll be leaving Helsham before long, and... It's not so far off the day you'll be preparing for your first donations. You need to remember that. If you're to have decent lives, you have to know who you are and what lies ahead of you, every one of you. Then she was silent. But my impression was that she was continuing to say things inside of her head because for some time her gaze kept roving over us, going from face to face just as if she were still speaking to us. We were all pretty relieved when she turned to look out over the playing field again. It's not so bad now, even though the rain was steady as ever. Let's just go out there. Then maybe the sun will come out. I think that was all she said. When I was discussing it with Ruth a few years ago at the center in Dover, she claimed Miss Lucy had told us a lot more. That she'd explain how before donations, we'd all spend some time first as carers about the usual sequence of the donations the recovery centers, and so on. But I'm pretty sure she didn't. Okay, she probably intended to when she began talking. But my guess is, once she'd set off, once she'd seen the puzzled, uncomfortable faces in front of her, she realized that the impossibility of completing what she'd started. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's a way to write a dramatic monologue. And this is not it. Okay, so... We're going to go over this little paragraph that Miss Lucy, S- Lucy spouts off. I know you don't mean any harm, but there's just too much talk like this. I hear it all the time. It's been allowed to go on, and it's not right. I could see more drops coming off the gutter and landing on her shoulder, but she didn't seem to notice. None of this information is important to us as the reader. You might as well be talking about dusting a room or cleaning your gutters or making a cup of tea. I think reading about making a cup of tea would be more enthralling than that little bit of dialogue but we'll go on. If no one else will talk to you she continued then I will. The problem is as I see it is that you've been told and not told. See she flounders. She goes back and forth back and forth and some of you out there may be saying well that's how people talk. Well this is a book. So The fact that this person, Kazuo Ishiguro, sat down and wrote this and thought, oh, this will do. Well, if I were an editor, I would have cut out most of this. None of you will go to America, none of you will be film stars, and none of you will be working in supermarkets as I heard some of you planning the other day. See, some of these kids have actual realistic goals. (laughs) There are people who graduate high school And they get a job at Walmart. And that's what they do. My first job out of college was at Walmart. And most of the people I started with were straight out of high school. And they had no aspiration to go to college. They were just going to work at Walmart. They graduated high school. They went to Walmart, got a job, and that's what they're doing. And some of us, We're led to believe by our parents, by our teachers, by any adult in our lives, that we have the potential to do anything. Now, a lot of them told us, you need to have realistic goals. But we were led to believe by the media as well, and through the falsehood of the American dream, we can do anything we want. We can go to Hollywood and become movie stars. If we sit in our room for hours on end playing our guitars, we could become professional musicians, which by the way, I have received my first payment for my music ever. I have been recording music since I was a teenager. I released my first album when I was 15. I'm 30 now. And I've finally received some money for my work. 26 cents. That's from streaming, by the way. I don't know that anyone's bought my MP3s other than my friend in prison. But, if you work really hard, you spend hours in your bedroom as a teenage boy, playing those scales on your guitar, learning how to record music on your own, not being able to find anyone in your town to play music with, at least not for very long, you too can grow up and be 30 years old and finally make 26 cents from all the hard work you put into your music. But, see, I've gotten off track here, and it's easy to do with this book, because this whole paragraph, it should be more effective and powerful, shouldn't it? Correct. Correct. Yes, this is a big deal. This is what your entire book is hinging on. This revelation that these students are going to grow up and die in their 20s and 30s. That's a big deal. Uh, And yet, it's treated with a a lot of subtlety. I'm not asking for someone to be shouting, Don't you know? Don't you know, you bunch of idiots? Yeah, I'm not asking for that. What I'm asking for as the audience is something that's not just a a, a rambling from this Miss Lucy, who I have no emotional investment in when I barely have any emotional investment in these children. I don't even care about Kathy. See, that is when you really fail as a writer from my perspective. If you can't get your audience to care about your protagonist, you have failed. And I don't care about Kathy. You know, the thing is is that you can write an awful character, someone who is completely evil, and you can still make people love and root for them. I mean, think about Walter White, Tony Soprano. Think about Lucifer on that fucking Lucifer show. That's literally the devil, the personification of evil. And you have people rooting for him. However, I can't root for for Kathy. She has no goals. She's just an observer of all this. And she's not even very good at that. I mean, Clay in Less Than Zero. I, I like Clay despite the fact that he's not a good person. He's a pawn in this novel that doesn't have a plot. But Less Than Zero is a perfect novel because of Clay's emotional detachment from everything because it's a sign of the times. Kathy is very much emotionally involved in everything from this little pencil holder to the fact that she's going to grow up and die in her 30s. Only she's not that invested in that. She's invested in falling in love with Tommy for some reason because despite the fact that they have such little time together, a span of maybe 30 years, they they find that love is important to them. And maybe that's the, the message of the book, that love conquers all, but that's bullshit. See, she goes on this whole long thing about sex, okay, and... Here's the funny thing. The movie makes sex look like a bad thing through Kathy's perspective because Kathy is the lone wolf. Despite the fact that she has these two friends, she's the third wheel. She doesn't have to be. There's nothing wrong with Kathy to where another boy wouldn't want anything to do with her. But she's isolated herself within this almost toxic three-way here where she's just waiting for Ruth to go away so she can be with Tommy, and Ruth calls her on it, and she's like, "Yeah, eh, eh, eh. it's essentially what she says," because yeah, that's exactly what she's fucking doing. She's waiting for Ruth to die so she can get some time with Tommy. If we skip ahead to part two of the novel, on chapter ten. Sometimes I'll be driving on a long, weaving road, across marshland, or maybe past rows of furrowing fields. The sky, big and gray, and never changing mile after mile. And I find I'm thinking about my essay, the one I was supposed to be writing back then, when we were at the cottages. The guardians had talked to us about our essays on and off through that last summer trying to help each of us choose a topic that would absorb us properly for anything up to two years. But somehow, maybe we could see something in the Guardian's manner. No one really believed the essays were that important. And among ourselves, we hardly discussed the matter. I mean, that is, uh, that's definitely writing. I don't know if it's good writing or bad writing. Structurally, it's fine. She's not really using language that I would use as a writer. It's very flowery. Uh, this, this book is just a, a long tirade of purple prose. So maybe it isn't good prose. I've been lying out my ass about it. It's, here's the thing. Kizuro Ishiguro is obviously a talented writer, okay? Now, you can be talented at writing and still write bad books. I don't think that... This this book may have, have touched someone in some way, and I feel bad for trashing it if that's the case, okay? I mean, I'm not going to take back any anything I've said, because... Chances are, as I've said, if you like this book, you're not going to like the books that matter to me either. So, I I can't read any more of this on the podcast. I mean, I've, I've gone over 40 minutes talking about this book, and we have come to this spiraling conclusion that it's not good, but also I could read the whole thing and it wouldn't get any better because it doesn't. They go to these cottages. They delude themselves... Two of them delude themselves into thinking that if they appeal to someone and tell them that they're in love, they can get their donations deferred so that they can have more time together. As if that matters to anybody. No. The government put money into creating you for the sake of helping actual people. So what did they have to gain from letting you have three to four years of just sprawling around out in the country together. And there's this, this lack of, I don't want to say that there's a lack of empathy, because that's what the whole novel is, is Kathy reflect on their lives and, How everything was so important to them at a young age. And then they grow up and they have to quietly live with the fact that they're going to die pretty soon. La-dee-da. She watches her two friends die. La-dee-da. But it's a terribly cruel thing, this whole novel. I mean, the fact that they're created just to be used and die, okay... But someone along the way thought, okay, we should educate them like regular children and give them things to do. And they are able to form emotional bonds with each other. And then they have to take care of each other and watch each other die. I mean, yeah, that's tragic. But I, I don't really feel for them, because it's not real, for one thing. If it were real, it would be a fucking travesty. But this character, Kathy, I have no emotional investment in her. I don't care whether or not she lives or dies. You know, when I read The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, I don't want her to kill herself. And I I think constantly, throughout that book and reading class poetry, how terrible it must have been to live in that, that mind of hers, where, I mean, she had two children, and she had a whole lovely life except for one major thing. She still had the same brain that she had when she was a teenager and she was trying to hurt, well, early 20s, trying to hurt herself and she's got this abusive piece of shit husband who cheats on her and how funny is it like i i'm so conflicted on ted hughes and that's not what this podcast is about by the way this podcast is about never let me go but here i am talking about sylvia plath and ted hughes because that's more interesting to me that has more emotional investment for me this book that i spent two weeks reading i don't get it I, I, I don't understand why someone would write this book the way that it's written I mean it's boring for one thing the movie was worse than the book it was so boring I mean I had to skip through the movie I didn't watch it from start to finish I kept like clicking on my, my laptop Go go forward go forward not much was happening okay? And maybe my, there's something wrong with my brain. After watching years and years of superhero movies and these fast-paced TV shows, maybe I, I don't have the mental capacity to process this. Maybe I'm the stupid one, but... And that's the thing. That, that makes me more upset, the, the fact that the author is so capable. I mean... There are authors out there who have great concepts, but they have terrible execution, and a lot of that has to do with their bad writing. I mean, look at Isaac Asimov. He had these great ideas. He was a terrible fucking writer. This person, Kazuo Ishiguro, whose name I probably keep mispronouncing because I'm ignorant and stupid, she has this capability to write something both meaningful and entertaining, and she fails on both on both fronts. I, I don't feel for these people. And in the end, if they all died, that would be fucking amazing for me. I would love... Here's, here's how you build uh, dr- drama throughout a, a, a story. You could have given them a fourth friend, someone that she loved, and then they had to watch them die Or maybe they ran away and they never saw them again. Instead, we get this anecdote about how children who try to run away from Hailsham are never let back in and they're just left to die. They're left to be killed by wolves or something. And here's another thing in my perverse mind, if you're going to be creating a lot of people for, if you're going to be creating clones of people, why are you just using them for? organ donations why are you not using them for warfare or uh, sex work or uh, experimentation why is it all just for the purpose of killing them and harvesting their organs i mean that alone and the fact that they don't run away I read people... This is is the thing. When I read books, I often read what people have to say in articles and forums because I want to understand things like, why don't they just run away? And then people say, well, it's because of their conditioning. And then they use the analogy of slavery. Like, are you fucking kidding me? This may or may not have been a good episode of Demise of the Podcast. I don't want to do another one like it. Quite honestly, because despite the fact that it may be fun to hear me frustrated, I don't like being frustrated by a book. I love writing and I love reading. And the fact that I I have to suffer through this and try to explain it to myself, explain it to you, even though you're probably smarter than me and you get it. Well, it's just not what the spirit of this podcast is. Okay. I want to analyze good writing. And when I get something like this on here... Imagine what it would be like if I read Twilight or Fifty Shades of Grey on here. I couldn't get through past page six of Fifty Shades of Grey. The writing was so fucking terrible. I mean, that writing was bad. And I had to sit through those goddamn movies, too. I mean, Fifty Shades of Grey makes Twilight look like fucking Gone with the Wind... So this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the Podcast. If you didn't like this, don't talk to me about it. I don't want to hear from you. I don't. I really don't. If you're offended by this, why did you listen to it at the, to this point? What's wrong with you? If you did like it, great. Um, Go listen to my music. Lurking Vowel on Spotify. Oh, by the way, I didn't want to talk about it, but I'm going to talk about it. OK, stop the introduction, Patrick. We're going to talk about this because I'm already in that frame of mind. I'm in that pissed off frame of mind. OK, people on Twitter are fucking stupid, for one thing, but also the fact that they think that they're going to start this social movement to delete Spotify all because of Joe Rogan and Neil Young and Joni Mitchell. Neil Young is not a great person. Neil Young is a rich rock star. And in the 70s, he wrote two... He's from Canada, too, by the way. He's not American. So the fact that he wrote two fucking songs, Alabama and Southern Man, that are just mediocre takes on country rock. He inspired the song Sweet Home Alabama Which is both a good thing and a bad thing, because Sweet Home Alabama is a good song, but it's overplayed, and I hate it. The fact that he inspired that alone, through his fucking ignorance about the South, is enough to make me not like him. Now, granted, I like some of his songs, and I think This Notes for You is a great song. It's probably the only thing in the 80s that he did that was worth a damn was this note's for you, and he criticized Eric Clapton for having his music in a beer commercial. Great. Uh, You're a rich rock star who pretends to be uh, down-to-earth, drives a beat-up pickup truck. Uh, La-di-da, Neil Young. I mean, you're a poser. And... Beyond that, the fact that his music is mediocre for the most part, he gets upset because Spotify is allowing Joe Rogan to talk about whatever the fuck he wants to on his podcast. And yeah, he's spreading misinformation about COVID-19. He was telling people not to vote for Biden. I mean, I don't like Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan is a piece of shit. I hate Joe Rogan more than I, I dislike Neil Young, but but there's something called freedom of speech, and ever all these people were like, "But he's spreading misinformation." You've been living with fucking Fox News on the goddamn uh, on your cable. You probably have Fox News on your satellite dish, on your cable. You're paying for it every month, with even if you don't fucking watch it for years. And that's just literally a propaganda hub. And here's the thing about contracts. Spotify can't just let Joe Rogan out of a, a gajillion dollar contract because he uses his right to free speech on his, on his podcast. And you can disagree with me. That's fine. But this is my podcast. I don't support Joe Rogan. I, I Again, I think he's a piece of shit. I don't even think his podcast is good. If you take away the disinf- this, the disinformation, look at his fan base. A bunch of fucking red pu- pillars and men's activists. Um, they're disgusting. They're a cesspool of disgusting little boys and they fucking man-child bodies. But... I- I'm not going to tell him... That he shouldn't have a podcast. Everyone has a podcast now. By the way, he's on YouTube. He started on YouTube. He was so big on a platform that was literally free that Spotify had to get him on their platform. So they gave him millions of dollars and they're reaping the benefits from it because, believe it or not, he probably has more fans of his podcast than Neil Young has fans of his music. And people were talking about Spotify's stock going down. And people have pointed out that the entire stock market has been going down. I mean, who the fuck cares for one thing? I mean, when Cuties came out on Netflix, people were talking about canceling Netflix. Netflix is still very much a thing. And Netflix didn't take Cuties off, and they they didn't take Dave Chappelle off, even though their own employees were protesting them. Because they're a corporation and they do what the fuck they want to. So Neil Young was essentially telling them, "Uh, if you don't take down Joe Rogan and stop him from spreading misinformation about COVID-19, I'm going to take my music down because I'm a rebel. When, In all actuality, Neil Young had that failed music player of his own, the Pono. He kept trying to uh, make a big deal out of his uh, lossless audio piece of shit that is awkwardly shaped. And it, it, it's it's a piece of shit, for one thing. But I, I'm, I'm getting off track here. Uh, I don't care that Neil Young took his music off Spotify. I wasn't listening to him on Spotify. I own one. Neil Young album on CD and it's a bootleg. Uh, Joni Mitchell, uh, same thing. I appreciate her as a songwriter. I don't give a shit if her music is on Spotify. Um, I don't give a shit if Joe Rogan's on Spotify or not either. But I support his freedom of speech. It's up to people to not listen to him. That's the thing. If you were... If you went to the center of your city and you got on a soapbox and you started shouting, most people would ignore you. You have the right to ignore people. Um, But, I mean, he's created a platform for himself where people listen to him. And I don't really see how taking him off Spotify would change that because he's big enough that uh, he still got YouTube, for one thing, but also he could go to any platform. He could start his own streaming service. He could start his own app, and uh, he probably does have his own app. So wh- who the fuck cares, honestly? Uh, people who are going to listen to him and believe his COVID-19 bullshit – yeah, uh, they're probably susceptible to that anyway. I mean, if you're going to listen to some guy on the internet say don't get vaccinated, you you probably lack the intelligence to comprehend the need for a vaccination. So, uh, who the fuck cares? Darwin, this shit. I mean, I don't mean to be insensitive, but We've gone through this pandemic a lot longer than we should have. And uh, you can't just point the finger at Joe Rogan for that. And I I very much dislike him. But um, as as far as taking him off Spotify, Spotify probably can't legally do it because of the contract. But beyond that, um, they would lose money if they did. How much money are they really losing if they don't have Neil Young on there? They didn't have spot. They didn't have Taylor Swift on their their platform for the longest time. I think they do now. They still don't have Garth Brooks, and Garth Brooks is one of the best-selling musicians of all time. They're doing just fine. Um, you may also remember that uh, they wanted to take R. Kelly off their platform, someone who's a lot worse as a human being than Joe Rogan and they decided not to because Kendrick Lamar, Lamar said, I'm going to take my music off if you take R. Kelly's music off. Where's the rebellion against that? Also, I'm pretty sure Chris Brown and Baby and all these terrible human beings, are they have all their music streaming on Spotify. Um, why are you not boycotting them because of that? Also, if you're on Twitter and you're complaining about it, you're... Participating on a platform that contributed to the events of January 6th last year. You're contributing to a platform that allowed Donald Trump to spew hatred as the president for four years. And you think that your voice matters on Twitter? That you're participating in some form of democracy on there? Twitter's not a real place. Anyway... I didn't mean to get on a soapbox at the end of this podcast, but I was in the mood. And maybe I said some stupid stuff. I don't know. I don't know if it was coherent. It may have just sounded like jibber jab. Who the fuck cares? Why are you listening to this? But if you listen to Joe Rogan and you listen to me, I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't listen to me. I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't listen to Joe Rogan. You do what the fuck you want to. I don't control anybody and I don't try to control people. I don't try to censor people. And you can disagree. I don't give a fuck. I just block you on Twitter. I don't want to hear it. Anyway, bye.